Good morning, VRBC, in person, online. So excited to uh, learn these lessons that God is teaching Israel and us as we make our way on the journey with him, lessons in the wilderness. And uh, today we're going to look at a, a handful of verses in two chapters in Exodus, Exodus 35 and Exodus 36, that deal with a really important topic, and that topic is generosity. And what I want to suggest to you today is that generosity is to me, true generosity, is like a little miracle, or maybe better, a, a chain reaction of miraculous events that God orchestrates in our lives. And so I'm excited uh, to dig into this passage with you. Exodus 35, we'll begin in verse 20. Uh, hear the word of the Lord. Then the whole Israelite community withdrew from Moses, and everyone who was willing and whose heart moved them, came and brought an offering to the Lord for the work on the tent of meeting, for all its service, and for the sacred garments. And then dropping down to chapter 36, verse 1. So Bezalel, Aholiab, and every skilled person to whom the Lord has given skill and ability to know how to carry out all the work of constructing the sanctuary, are to do the work just as the Lord has commanded. Then Moses summoned Bezalel and Aholiab and every skilled person to whom the Lord had given ability and who was willing to come and do the work. They received from Moses all the offerings the Israelites had brought to carry out the work of constructing the sanctuary. And the people continued to bring free will offerings, morning after morning. So all the skilled workers who were doing all the work on the sanctuary left what they were doing and said to Moses, the people are bringing more than enough for doing the work the Lord commanded to be done. Then Moses gave an order, and they sent this word throughout the camp. No man or woman is to make anything else as an offering for the sanctuary. And so the people were restrained from bringing more because they already had, because what they already had was more than enough to do all the work. May God bless the reading of his word. My grandfather, called him Pa, lived the hard scrabble life of a farmer uh, during the Great Depression. And when life got really bad uh, in that really tough season, uh, he actually had to, to sell half of the land <clears throat> that he owned to afford to keep the other half. So my grandfather, in other words, really knew a lot about working hard in the midst of scarcity. In fact, I had this memory of being with my dad and my grandfather in his garage. That's what they called it. Although for me, a little kid, seeing a garage with a dirt floor that you had to sweep was very, uh, very different for me. And I noticed that on the, on the dark shelves in this garage, there was this uh, old mason jar and it was filled with every kind of random nail and bolt and screw that you could imagine. And, uh, you know, I had seen boxes of like 10 penny nails, all shiny and uniform and uh, the same thing with bolts and screws. But here there was just kind of this random, almost like dirty collection in this mason jar. And I asked my dad, you know, dad, why would you hold on uh, to this kind of old junk? And, and my dad, who, by the way, has the same kind of jar to this day in his garage, said, uh, son, your, your grandfather grew up during the Depression. And he said, in the Depression, you never threw anything away that there might be the slightest possibility that you could use. Now, for some reason, that old jar comes to mind when I read this section of the book of Exodus. Because, I mean, talk about a Depression mindset. Talk about scarcity. I mean, when you're living in the wilderness where even food and water are scarce, I mean, your mindset is all about conservation, isn't it? I mean, when you're living with so much lack, 
your, your mindset is, is focused on scarcity. Your mindset is focused on holding on tightly to, to whatever you have. And, and I believe that, that, that conservation is a value, whether you're talking about old nails uh, or whether you're talking about valued traditions or whether you're talking about old forests, I, I think conservation is generally speaking a very good thing. And yet in the passage that I just read to you, maybe you heard it, uh, instead of the, the natural mindset of holding on tightly to what we have, what we're seeing play out is, is a supernatural mindset of holy living, and that is living generously. It's, it's generosity. And by the way, I don't want you to hear me making enemies of conservation and generosity. I, I think they can be enemies, but I also think they can be best friends. Uh, what I want us to see this morning is how people who definitely knew the value of holding on to possessions for a rainy day, they, they, they demonstrate in these two chapters a, a generosity that I think is, is shocking. Now, I'll be honest, as a pastor, okay, I want to know more. <laughs> I want to know more about how this group of people grew so dramatically in the area of generosity. But trust me when I say that I want to know even, I, I have an even greater motivation to know more, not as a pastor, but as a person, as, a, as an individual disciple of Jesus. I want to know how, and I want to know why. And so you need to know, I'm, I'm all bought in on this topic. What is the secret? What is the secret to living generously? Or, or, or to phrase the question a little differently, what if generosity is not a chore to be forced on us, but a flood that can't be stopped. Now, as I've studied this text, and, and, and especially as I thought about it in the light of uh, the broader teaching of Scripture, I see, as I've kind of already hinted to you, that I see holy generosity, genuine spiritual generosity, as a set of interlocking miracles. How many? Three, of course. And, uh, and so I want to walk through these three, and then we will be done. The first miracle uh, of generosity is a miracle of the head. It is a mind focused on God. Now, why do I call this a miracle of the head? Well, I think that spiritually generous people think differently. Uh, in fact, I was struck in verse four, it's an ordinary verse, but when we put it in its broader context, maybe you'll be struck by it as well. Look with me at verse four. Moses said to the whole Israelite community, this is what the Lord has commanded. I mean, you couldn't get a more ordinary verse in Exodus than this, right? We see verses like this all the time. So what makes this verse extraordinary? Well, you may remember last week we talked about this horrible rebellion uh, that Israel committed against God. And, and for a time, there was a breakup between God and Israel. Israel had given their heart, their allegiance to the, gold, uh, the golden calf, which is kind of a, a God substitute. And uh, in fact, they, they actually took their gold jewelry and they, they, they passed the plate and they, they, they contributed to a kind of sinister offering, if you will. They offered up their gold to create this monstrosity of an idol. But three chapters later, in chapter 35, verse 4, guess what? A miracle has happened. Because of God, because of his grace, God and the people are on speaking terms again. And, and, and God and the people are cooperating 
again. Through the mediation of Moses, but ultimately through the grace of God, Israel has experienced God's mercy. Israel has a second chance to serve God. Israel has a second chance to be obedient to God. And in this instance, they're going to they're gonna take God up on this second chance. And you might say that God's forgiveness, God's grace has, has changed their mental focus. And so instead of contributing their resources for, for selfish pur- purposes or for idolatrous purposes, now they're going to give their resources for a holy purpose. This kind of change in mindset, this little miracle of the mind, is what the Bible calls repentance. And repentance uh, literally means uh, uh, to, to change your mind, to think in a different way. I want to use an illustration that a great preacher and missionary, Leslie Newbigin, once used. Uh, uh, Newbigin was a, a missionary in the 20th century uh, to, to India, and, uh, and he gave this kind of brilliant illustration from his own life uh, to kind of picture out for us what what repentance looks like. He says he was traveling in the Chennai section of India. We have a lot of folks around here from Chennai. And he was getting, going to a village there. In this particular village, uh, the, the only way you could really get to it was by, was by a river. And there were actually two crossings. You could, you could cross on the north side or you could cross on the south side. Well, uh, the, the, the Christians in this village heard that Leslie Newbigin was coming and they prepared a welcome for him such as only an Indian village can prepare. I mean, there was music and, and there were, were fireworks and there were garlands and fruit and, and something called salumbum, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, which is a, a kind of South Indian martial art that's done for, on ceremonial occasions. I mean, it was, I mean, it was everything you might imagine. The only problem was uh, Leslie Newbigin entered the village at the north end and the people were at the south end. And he said when he got there, to his surprise, all he saw were a few goats and chickens. And he said this, this, was, a, this was a crisis. And so basically he had to kind of get word out through the village and he had to disappear for a little while and the people had to leave the southern village and, and pack up everything and do a U-turn and go in the opposite direction and come to the north village and set up the parade. And then Leslie Newbigin appeared again and there was, of course, a big grand celebration. Newbigin says this is what repentance is like. God has drawn near, but we are facing the wrong direction. For the Israelites, they were facing the golden calf and not the God who reigned on Mount Sinai. So what, what is repentance? What has to happen in our mind? It's this mental relocation. It's, it's a U-turn. It's what Paul in, in Romans 12 calls a, a renewing of the mind. And I think this is a gift of the Holy Spirit. I think it happens when we're investing in the, the kingdom of self and selfish pleasure and that's where our resources are going and God calls us to repentance and the Spirit fills us with a gratitude and that gratitude leads to generosity. And get this, generosity becomes not a have to, right, frowny face, but a get to, smiley face. And so I would just say to you today, if there is, and I'm not saying there is, but if there is a, a blockage in your generosity, if you sense that, I mean, there's a really good chance of, that, that what you're in need of, what you need to pray for is the miracle of repentance. 
that the Holy Spirit would help you relocate the parade of your life toward God, that in your prayer, you're, you're, you're basically saying, Jesus, you, you know, on the cross, you, you have forgiven me. You have given me a new lease on life. You've given me a new life. You've given me the spirit. You've given me salvation. You've given me hope. You've given me everything. And because of that, it's my privilege to live generously. So that first miracle, miracle of the head, repentance, leads to a second miracle that's even more explicitly mentioned in our text, and that is a miracle of the heart, a heart that's filled with joy. Maybe you heard it uh, as I was reading it. We didn't read uh, this verse specifically, but, but uh, chapter 35, verse 5 uh, lays this out. It says, from what you have, take an offering for the Lord. And then it says, everyone who is willing is to bring to the Lord an offering of gold, silver, bronze. I put ellipses there because it goes on and on and on of of valuable things that the people uh, eventually ended up bringing. But it all started with a a heart that is willing. It all started with a heart, some translations say that is noble. I think this is really important. What is happening in Exodus 35 is not the, the dynamic of like a typical school fundraiser. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, where a volunteer calls you and, and says, well, every parent is supposed to give. I don't know if you knew that. Well, no, I didn't. Well, aren't we already giving with taxes or private, you know what, okay. And, and it, you know, that's an unwilling heart. Like I'm, I'm doing this not to be embarrassed. I'm doing this because I, I feel a lot of pressure, but my heart, uh, my heart is kind of digging in its heels. I'm giving anyway, but, but my heart is not willing. Uh, but, but, but that's not what's happening here. Moses is calling for those whose hearts are willing. He's calling on those who've begun to experience this little revolution of grace and gratitude in their hearts. In fact, it's very similar, this willing or noble heart, to what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. I love this verse. It says, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. There's that willing heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a, a cheerful giver. God, God loves a, a, a giver whose heart is filled with joy. It, it's a willing and not reluctant heart. Verse 21 of chapter 35 speaks similarly of everyone who was willing, and it says, and whose heart moved them, came and brought an offering to the Lord. I bet you've experienced this like so many times where something touched your heart. Something kind of got into your heart. Your heart was moved. Your heart was melted or, 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 or shaken or electrified. And you were not only willing to give. I mean, you deeply wanted to give. You would have been disappointed if somebody said, sorry, we have all we could take. Because your heart was moved to give. Now, this is a work that God does in our hearts. Because friends, I really believe, contrary to what a lot of pastors like me say, that, that God's not after your wallet. He's after your heart. God wants to get a hold of your heart. I love the story that Rich Stearns tells. Rich Stearns uh, was the CEO of Linux China before he later became the CEO of World Vision. And he says it was back in 1987. I remember this day. Uh, it was the largest single day stock market crash since the Great Depression. Fortunately for me, it, you know, I only had 20 bucks and it didn't affect me at all. But, uh, but, uh, but it, it, it wiped out, for Rich Stearns, it wiped out about a third of his life savings and college education money for the kids. And for night afterwards, he was just distraught about it. 
He was anguished. He said he would stay up past midnight trying to figure out, well, maybe I can sell these stocks to prevent further losses, which he said ended up being the worst thing he could have done. And, and he was just so anguished about it. His wife was really worried about him. And, and she said, Rich, I think we need to pray about this. And, and then she said, you know, honey, it's only money. I mean, we have our marriage. We have our health. We have our children. We have a good income. We have so much to be thankful for. And Rich says, don't you hate it when somebody crashes your pity party, you know? Uh, but, but, he, but he said, you know, he said, I, mean, I feel responsible. I, I'm responsible for this family. He goes, it's like my job to worry about stuff like this. But his wife said, you know what, I, I think we need to pray about it instead. Rich said the thought had never occurred to him. It never occurred to him to pray about it. And so they, they prayed, and, and then they were done, and Rich thought that was the end of it. And his wife said, you know what, what I think we need to do now is I think we need to get out the checkbook and I think we need to write some big checks to our church and ministries that we support. She said, I think we need to show God that this is actually his money and not ours. And Rich said he was flabbergasted at the audacity of the suggestion. But he said something really interesting. But he said, but in my heart, I knew it was right. And he said, so that night, we got out the checkbook, we wrote some sizable checks, we put them in envelopes, we addressed them to various ministries, we sealed them, and we sent them. And he said, that's when it happened. He said, that's when I felt this wave of relief. And then he said this, and this is really interesting. He said, we had broken the spell that money had cast over me. It freed me from the worries that consumed me. He said, I actually felt reckless and giddy. I think that's it. I think that's the miracle that happens when God fills us with faith to trust him and to live generously. And, and I just have to tell you as your pastor, I love the fact that over the years at VRBC, I've gotten to see this miracle happen over and over and over again. You'd think I'd, I'd get bored with it, but I'm not. I'm not bored with it at all. It, 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 but I've gotten to see it so many times. I think about our first Christmas store. That felt like a miracle. And yet everyone since has felt like a miracle. It's such a joy to see people so eager to give and eager to serve here and at Cornerstone in our community. You know, in non-COVID times, it's such a joy to walk upstairs on an on a ESL morning and just see the joy of volunteers who just love to give up their time and love to serve others. You know what, I don't know if you're aware of this, as soon as COVID-19 started, a lot of folks in our congregation began to be worried about other folks in our congregation who were losing jobs and losing incomes, and they just kind of, all on their own, just began to, to, to write checks to the benevolence ministry. We were able to use that money to help so many people, and it was so cool just to see God prompting this little miracle. And, you know, more recently with this new ministry idea of meals with a mission, I mean, we just, I shouldn't start listing things because it's just so many things, so many places. I get to see over and over again this miracle of the heart, and it's beautiful. But lest you think generosity is all about resources and money and giving, I want you to, I want you to notice a third miracle that happens in this passage, and that's a miracle of the hand. Miracle of the hand. What we see in this passage are hands and feet, actually, that are freed to serve. Something really powerful happens in these two chapters. We'll look at chapter 35, verse 10 first, so we can notice it. Uh, the call goes out, all who are skilled among you are to come and make everything the Lord has commanded. Basically, a call is put out 
for servants. A call is put out for artists. Chapter 36, verse 1 says, every skilled person to whom the Lord has given skill and ability. Have you ever thought about it that way? Your, your gifts, your skills, your talents are gifts from the Lord to you. Thank you, Lord. And they're gifts for other people. And then chapter 36, verse 2 says they are to come and do the work. And in the Hebrew, the idea is it's, it's the same word that you would use to come and bring an offering. Isn't that interesting? So instead of coming and bringing a material gift, we are coming and bringing our hands. We're bringing our feet. We're bringing our talents and gifts that God has given us. And we're serving. If you've been reading the, the Exodus devotions, you may remember one that, that I wrote that, uh, where I've just become convicted that uh, the, the church, capital C, has not always treated artists well. You know, it's like, well, I don't care about that. It's just, let, let, let's just focus on spiritual stuff. That's, that's not spiritual. I think it is. I think it is. And I think it is amazing when God has given you a talent or a gift and whether that talent is in the area of music or drama or fine arts or carpentry or graphic arts or horticulture or whatever it is, if God has given you a gift and you basically come forward and you make an offering of your serving. And so I pray that we continue to be the kind of church that's looking out for, for artists, that's looking out for servants, that's looking out of volunteers for every kind. In fact, I hope you've, you've heard it clearly over the last few weeks from this Serve Initiative, this, this Saturday, May 1st, this Serve Initiative. What a great opportunity for us to, to, to put into practice the, the skills, gifts, and willingness that God has given us. By the way, I signed up. I'm, not, I'm technologically challenged. It was super easy uh, to sign up. So, uh, you know, in, in, in the same way that the tabernacle of old needed people to live generously, live generously with their resources, live generously with their talents, we do too. We do too. And I know sometimes kind of putting yourself out there, signing up to serve, it can feel in, intimidating. But, but I would just say trust your heart. And if God is giving you a willing heart, just just pray for the courage to follow through. Friends, who knows what God might do through your being willing to serve? I mean, who knows what friends you might meet? I, I, some of the closest friendships I, I, I encounter here at VRBC are, are people who initially connected because they were serving shoulder to shoulder. Who knows who you might bless? Who knows how you might be blessed? Now, I gotta tell you my favorite part of this passage. Uh, and it's what happens in verses 4 through 7 of chapter 36. In fact, maybe you were struck as I was reading it a moment ago. I want, you to, I want you to picture what's happening here. All these artists, all these skill workers have come forward to build the tabernacle. And apparently the people every day are just bringing more and more valuable stuff that's going to be a part of the tabernacle. And, and here they are, and you, you know, they're trying to work, and yet there's all this stuff everywhere. And there's no, there's no staging area. There's no room for them to build. And so they go to the Moses, and they say to Moses, verse 5, basically they say, the people are bringing too much stuff. And so Moses has to have a little meeting, and then I, I think he has to send out an e-blast uh, to the community. And look what he says in verse 6. I love this. Then Moses gave an order, and they sent this word throughout the camp. No man or woman is to make anything else as an offering for the sanctuary. And so the people were restrained from bringing more. Isn't that remarkable? I mean, isn't that a miracle? Nothing short of a miracle. 
Listen, friends, I, I want to I congratulate you. You've, you've walked in, whether you knew it or not, you've walked into a sermon on generosity, and nobody's left as far as I can tell. And so I want to congratulate you on that. We've all had to sit through icky sales pitches uh, before, whether from churches or organizations, and we know that's, that's no fun. And even if we put money in the envelope at the centerpiece of the table, uh, there wasn't anything miraculous going on in our hearts it was forced, it was reluctant, it was anything but cheerful. But I hope you've heard from me, that's not what this sermon is about. This sermon is about what happens when the gospel of Jesus Christ gets hold of our hearts. A friend of mine put it this way in a book he wrote, uh, he said that the, one of the things the gospel does, when the gospel gets hold of your heart, one of the things the gospel does is it, it, it provokes spontaneity, I love that. Gospel people tend to become spontaneous people. He defines spontaneity as, as the sudden and oftentimes what feels like foolish yes to the call of God. That's spontaneity. It's just saying yes to God before you even have a chance to think about it. Okay, God, I'll do that. It's prompted, he said, by the way that the Spirit blows. Jesus in John 3 says the Spirit's like wind. I mean, you can't see it coming, but then all of a sudden the wind is here and the Spirit is like that. And when the Spirit moves in our heart, it just makes us, like the Spirit, generous. In this book, uh, this friend of mine quotes a, a modern love column in the New York Times and, and, and tells about a woman who took a very unusual approach to the news from her husband that he no longer wanted to be with her and no longer wanted to be with the kids. She said everything in her heart <laughs> when she first heard that news, wanted to judge him, wanted to fight him, but something happened in her heart and she moved in a different direction, kind of a spontaneous direction for her. And that is she just decided to keep on serving him. She just decided that she would love him from afar. And one day this absent husband actually came home early to mow the lawn and she thought, do you come home early to mow the lawn of the house that you're getting ready to leave? And then he mentioned that the, the, this front door that had been broken for eight years, it's like, I'm tired of it, I'm gonna fix it. And then he started talking about, you know what, we're going to need firewood for the winter. Little by little, she said, he began talking about the future. But then she says it was a Thanksgiving dinner that sealed it. She said her husband bowed his head humbly and he said, I'm thankful for my family. My friend says it, it was like her love produced what judgment could not. Her love softened his hard heart. That's a miracle, isn't it? That's the kind of miracle the gospel produces in our hearts. Jesus could judge us, but instead he stretches out his arms and he loves us. And his love does something to our hearts. It, it opens our minds to our sin. It melts our hearts. It, it puts strength into our hands as we just want to serve him. And this can even happen in the, in, in the desert times of our lives. As we've said, conservation and important value. But there's so many times that God calls us to live open-handedly and generously. And it's not because God wants to make us miserable. No, it's because God wants our hearts to be the staging ground of the miracle of letting his love flow through us. And that's what I'm increasingly praying for. Now, will our church benefit? Absolutely. 
But I'm praying even more for the miracle that happens in your mind and heart and life and in my mind and heart and life. In fact, this week I kind of found myself dreaming about the day when I might stand up here and say, stop it! You're giving too much! You're serving too much! Man, won't that be an amazing day? Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we are the recipients of such massive generosity, Lord. Our life, our breath, Lord, your grace and forgiveness. Lord, we are debtors to grace. And Lord, we pray that that miracle would continue to happen in our hearts and lives, a chain reaction, Lord. And so, Lord, even in this moment, we pray that that process of repentance is going on, that we realize we've set up the parade of our lives in the wrong direction, Lord. Call us, Lord, to a 180. And Lord, that miracle in our hearts, not grudging or reluctant hearts, but willing, moved, melted hearts. And then, Lord, it doesn't stop with our hearts, but hands free to serve, give, pray, bless, all because of you and all for your glory. Ah, Lord, give us eyes to see this miracle in our lives and the lives of others, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.